Turn with me, please, or listen on as we continue the reading from Acts. Having read the letter, uh, we will see its reception in three places. Beginning in verse 30 of Acts chapter 15. Hear God's word. So when they were sent off, they came to Antioch, and when they had gathered the multitude together, they delivered the letter. When they had read it, they rejoiced over its encouragement. Now Judas and Silas, themselves being prophets, also exhorted and strengthened the brethren with many words. And after they had stayed there for a time, they were sent back with greetings from the brethren to the apostles. However, it seemed good to Silas to remain there. Paul and Barnabas also remained in Antioch teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. Uh, Then after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us now go back and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Now, when Barnabas was determined to take with them, John called Mark. But Paul insisted that they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia. And had uh, not gone with them to the work. Then the contention became so sharp that they parted from one another. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, being commended by the brethren to the grace of God. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Then he came to Derbe and Lystra. And behold, a certain disciple uh, was there named Timothy, uh, the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed. But his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brethren who were at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted to have him go with him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in that region, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. And as they went through the cities, they delivered to them the decrees to keep, which were determined by the apostles and the elders at Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and increased in number daily. Let us pray together. Uh, Gracious Father in heaven, we praise you again for your word, and we ask you that now through the preaching you might open it to us, uh, open it up to us with greater clarity and greater power and greater light. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you remember, there was uh, this dilemma in the early church. Certain men came down from Judea and taught, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And that was something uh, that uh, was occurring at Antioch where uh, Paul, Barnabas, and Peter all were. Uh, We discover in uh, Galatians that only Paul withstood them. Uh, Barnabas and Peter both caved, as it were. Uh, But we find all these men back in Jerusalem debating the matter and ultimately settling uh, uh, on on what we read in uh, the letter that was to be sent out. We don't need to review that here. Uh, We did so in detail in the prior sermon. In essence, their, their desire was to... Uh, reject the teaching of those certain men, but to make certain accommodations uh, at table to make table fellowship more likely for Jew and Gentile. We find that in verse 29, that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and in addition to that, from sexual immorality. If you keep yourself from these, you'll do well. That is to the Gentile churches. Uh, But if you look earlier, They speak of those who were troubling you with unsettling words. You must be circumcised and keep the law that they rejected. Well, they write the letter and they send it out at the hands of these two men, Silas and Judas. And then Paul and Barnabas accompanied them. They go down to Antioch or or up to Antioch, depending on uh, how it how it is uh, 
uh, stated in the narrative. At any rate, uh, they go to Antioch and uh, they deliver the, narr- uh, the letter. But uh, as we find in the narrative, um, that wasn't the only place they went. In fact, if you look at uh, what it says, it says to the, to the brethren who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria and Cilicia. Well, no surprise. Where do they go after Antioch? They go to Syria and Cilicia. And then following that, uh, that you read in verse 41. And then uh, after that, they go to Derby and Lystra. And we read that they delivered the letter there as well. And so very neatly, uh, the sermon divides itself into three points, three destinations. And we find them first in Antioch, where the uh, controversy began. Uh, it should be very obvious why the letter was sent there first. Again, that's where the the controversy originated. Uh, and so that having settled the matter in Jerusalem, obviously they needed to send communication uh, of their determination back to that place. Also, Antioch, if Jerusalem was the center of the Jewish church, uh, Antioch was the center of the Gentile church. So the interplay between those two churches on this decisive issue was also significant. The letter is delivered to the church. Now, I just want to stop there and, and, and have you realize that this was a common practice in the early church. If you think of the epistles, they were delivered to the churches. And what do you think happened when they were delivered? Well, they were read to the church, and that's exactly what we have here. They gathered the multitude together, at, that is the church, they delivered the letter, and they read it. I don't need to reread the letter, we, we read it earlier, uh, but if we hadn't, I, I would do so now. You, we know now what the letter says, but that isn't the only thing they did. Having read the letter, what did they do next? They preached. We see that Silas and Judas preached to those who were there, and I can only say at this point, are we surprised? The practice of the early church is well established at this point, which I would say Uh, consistently gives us justification for our own practice. When we come together, it's for the reading of, well, these letters. Isn't that what we're doing? And then having read them, what else are we doing? We're preaching based upon them. I say that's a justification for our own practice. Where do we find it? Well, we find it in Acts. And what did they preach? Luke doesn't tell us, but it seems obvious enough to me at least, or at least very likely that what Silas and Judas were preaching was the contents of the letter. The letter was read, but they were expounding it. They were saying, these are truths you've got to, you've got to get a hold of. Let me, let me tell you what these truths are. Let me tell you why they're so important, and let me apply them practically to you. I know you'll have certain questions. Let me try to address those in the preaching. You see, that's precisely what happens when uh, one of the New Testament epistles is opened up and expounded, and that is exactly what happened there. In other words... Just to justify uh, the practice of preaching the epistles, uh, I, I think we could equally say of this letter and the other New Testament letters uh, that uh, the letters themselves were never meant to stand on their own. They were meant uh, to be read, but then they were meant to be preached as well. The truths that were expressed there were meant to be expounded and unpacked. Do we also see how the preaching is described there? They exhorted and strengthened the brethren with many words. That's what the preaching is, beloved. The preaching is an exhortation. 
the preaching is strengthening uh, the brethren, yes, with many words. It isn't quite so brief as the letter, in other words. And that's what the church needs more than anything else as she gathers. The church gathers not to remain as she is, but to be encouraged and strengthened in grace and holiness week by week. And yet we read at the same time these men did not stay forever. They were sent uh, to deliver the letter and then it seemed good to them to preach. Uh, I am saying the contents of the letter to these people. Or to amplify the message of the letter by preaching. But having done that, they return to Jerusalem with greetings from the brothers to the apostles. They go to Antioch and then they return to Jerusalem having accomplished their mission. We have, therefore, a happy picture of harmony between uh, the Jerusalem, mostly Jewish church, and the Gentile, uh, or at least mostly Gentile church in Antioch. That's what we're meant to see. Harmony was secured. It was a happy result. Now, I would would, uh, jump to verse 35 if I could, but I will for a moment very reluctantly engage in textual criticism, uh, which you know I do not like or enjoy. But verse 34 is not supported. It would be easier to say, well, it, it is, it's there, it's supported, but, it, but frankly, it, it just isn't. It shouldn't be there at all. It doesn't even make sense. Silas and Judas returned to Jerusalem. However, Silas remained uh, in Antioch. Uh, the verse just doesn't make sense. But more importantly, there is very little textual evidence to support it. And so just skip the verse. As much as I love the Textus Receptus, there are errors, and we must be honest about those, and this is one of them. But having said that, that's the extent of textual criticism that I'm willing to engage in. Having said that, let us see that Paul and Barnabas, though they did not deliver the letter, for they were not suited to do so, being at the center of the controversy, But nevertheless, journeying with these other men from Jerusalem, stayed in Antioch, even as the other two men returned to Jerusalem. And what do you suppose they did? Well, they preached. Judas and Silas preached to them. They left. And then Barnabas and Paul took their turn in preaching. They preached and they taught. Now, as an aside, let me say this. This is a very minor aside, but... We need to realize in the minds of the apostles in writing the New Testament, the New Testament draws no distinction between these two things. You find a variety of expression. You find exhorting. You find strengthening. You find, just in this passage, you find preaching. You find teaching. It's it's really always the same. Uh, I mean, the same idea being conveyed in so many words. There was not this sharp distinction between teaching and and preaching. But if we were to try to describe what they were doing by these variety of words in the modern vernacular, they were preaching. They were preaching. And they weren't the only ones. It says, with many others also. There were many preaching, many preachers. I think of how it was, uh, not so much today, but how it was in the days of the Reformation in Geneva or Wittenberg. Sometimes we think Calvin alone ascended the pulpit in Geneva or Luther alone. Did you know Luther wasn't even the main preacher in Wittenberg? Now, he did plenty of preaching there, but he wasn't the main preacher. Yet they held daily services. They held multiple services on Sunday. How on earth do you think they ever had so many sermons? The answer is they had so many preachers. 
And that's what we find in the early church, just what we find in the days of the Reformation. It wasn't only one man preaching. And let me just say, that's revival. That's revival. Acts records the greatest revival in history. And we notice many key similarities between it and subsequent revivals. Always, always revival is produced by the preaching of God's word. We could also say in in, in the same direction, if preaching produces revival, so revival produces preaching. So that there's not only a great interest in the preaching. I've said this many times. What happens in revival is people, they cannot get enough preaching. Uh, You remember the scene where Paul was preaching to those people and they they chased him home. And and you have similar stories uh, in, in, in the life of George Whitfield. You could not satisfy the desire for preaching. Well, not only is there this insatiable desire for the word to be preached, but in such days, God is supplying preaching to the church. And he's doing he does so in two main ways. One is that he provides an ease and a faculty of preparing sermons so that a man who once found great difficulty in preparing sermons suddenly finds much, much greater ease. Uh, Even the faculty of extemporaneous speech, he begins to develop under the influence of the spirit. But the other thing that God does, and that's what we see here, that's what we see in the Reformation, that's what we should pray for in days to come, is that he raises up a multitude of preachers. He gives the desire and then he meets the desire, not through one man, but through many men. He supplies the church with preaching. That's what he was doing there in Antioch. We read not only of four, but of many other preachers. Well, that's what happens when the letter goes to the first place. But that's not the end of the narrative. Next, we go to uh, Syria and Cilicia, even as the letter intended for it to go, to the brethren who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria and Cilicia. We also see Paul and Barnabas here in their desire to go there, retracing some of their earlier missionary journey. Let us go and see uh, in every city where we have preached the word and see how they are doing. That was his common practice, not to preach and establish churches and leave them as they were, but to go back and to return and to see how they were doing. As I said, these two towns were included in the charter. Of the letter, verse 23 mirrors verse 41, and, and he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. But here, as in the next case, the focus is less on uh, the delivery and the reception of the letter, but on an interesting fact that happened there in the course of the dissemination of the letter, here as well as in Lystra and Derby, though that was the focus in Antioch. Here, the focus sadly centers on the disagreement that occurs between Paul and Barnabas. Let me read verses 37 through 40 again. Now, Barnabas was determined to take with him John called Mark, but Paul insisted that they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. So the, the, or then the contention became so sharp that they parted from one another. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, being commended by the brethren to the grace of God. There was a sharp contention, a bitter dispute between these two friends. Do you remember uh, that this had happened before? 
This isn't the first uh, disagreement that we read of in Acts. Indeed, the dispute once again centers on the same person, John Mark. You remember what happened before. John Mark had earlier accompanied Paul and Barnabas, but the situation did not last. We read in chapter 13, verse 13, uh, just as a matter of fact, when Paul and his party set sail from Paphos, they came to Perga and Pamphylia, and John, departing from them, returning to Jerusalem. There was some form of disagreement. We don't know what, uh, but uh, we begin to see here Paul was not very happy about it. Paul was thoroughly unimpressed with John Mark as a result of this, and he had not forgotten it. He viewed this as a very serious departure, as he often did. Uh, You know, Paul, in his letters, often reflects upon this, especially in 2 Timothy chapter 4. He talks about those who were with him for a long time but departed from him. And it's a a pretty sad picture. But uh, if you read that in connection with what Paul is saying here, it becomes very clear that this was something uh, that Paul considered to be uh, a very, very grievous thing. Whereas Barnabas, on the other hand, uh, can we say, had uh, a more charitable heart. He was more ready to forgive this offense, Paul less so. Barnabas valued his work and believed he was worthy of a second chance. That is John Mark. Again, not so much Paul. But what's sad is how this sharply drove a wedge between Paul and Barnabas. The contention became so sharp that they departed from one another. These two trusted and beloved companions. My comment is this. As sad as this is to see, it's also common. This is not only the testimony of Paul, but this is the testimony of countless Christians. If you spend any amount of time in the church, you will be like Paul or you will be like Barnabas on the other side of it or John Mark. You'll say either I was the center of a controversy or, well, uh, I was party to a controversy. I once had uh, the dearest friend in the church and he left me or I left him. You see, that's the kind of thing we find even in the greatest revival the, the world has ever known. The spirit was poured out with uh, an unusual, or, or, or um, the spirit was poured out in an unusual way, and still there were these dissensions, these disagreements. This was not the first time this had happened, nor would it be the last. One of the things that strikes me, and I think we see this here again, is how personally Paul took these departures. Barnabas said, "Let's take John along with us," and Paul said, "I don't think so." He had not forgotten what John had done uh, before. Paul took these things very personally. I can relate to Paul in this, by the way. I think I understand Paul. Paul was a man. I'm not so much relating to him here. So don't hear me saying that. But Paul was a man who would not bend at the pressure of others. These men came in to spy out our liberty. I wouldn't yield a single inch to them. Look at uh, Peter. Look at Barnabas. They were caving at the pressure. Paul would not yield an inch to them. He had an iron will. He would do all for Christ. Even when others would falter. And yet he was deeply wounded when a dear brother departed him. 
He did not feel that this could be justified or excused. And I almost say he did not feel it could be forgiven. At least this was something that he did not easily forgive or forget. I think honesty requires that we acknowledge this. Go and read. Uh, we don't have time to do this now, but read Second Timothy 4, uh, the end of his life. And you'll see him reflecting on how many brothers had departed him. He took this very seriously. But we should be honest as well that when dear friends depart us, as at times they do, it will deeply wound us. Do we think that the apostles were above this? Do we sometimes think of them as super Christians rather than as just ordinary Christians, men like you and me? Who loved and labored with their brothers and yet at times because of controversy found their brothers departing them. They were not super Christians. They were regular Christians. They were men like ourselves. And we notice how controversy in the church could break down a friendship like that of Paul and Barnabas. And if it could do that, do we think that it could never happen to us? Again, I think the testimony of almost everyone in this room is at some time it's happened to me. Beloved, let us see that for all the unity enjoyed by believers in this age, especially in times of revival, such as we read of in Acts, the unity that the church enjoys is not that of heaven. I think that's one of the main things that Luke is trying to help us to see. He just spoke of this happy harmony between Jerusalem and Antioch, Jew and Gentiles sharing fellowship together. And yet Paul and Barnabas couldn't even get along. You have to balance the picture. You have to be honest. You have to be realistic. The unity that the church enjoys today is not that of heaven. The church militant is not the church triumphant. And part of her future triumph will be the end of such strife between uh, her, her ranks or within her ranks. But so long as she remains in her militant state, at times she will find her at odds not only with the world but within. At odds with herself. That's what Luke is telling us. There is no way to avoid this. Brothers will be at odds. Brothers will part ways. It will be very painful. It will be difficult to forgive, but it is bound to happen. The only really positive thing we can say here is that though man, that is collectively, Paul and Barnabas's men, were so weak that neither could find a real solution but to break up the party, that isn't a very good solution. But it was the best they could do. Though that was man's solution, God turned it for good. And you can hardly read a commentator who doesn't pick up on this. That now God, uh, through the, the folly of man, was multiplying their labors. Now, instead of one mission party, you had two. Am I saying that we ought to justify this sort of thing? Oh, a church splits up and now you have two churches instead of one or or something like that. That's not what I'm saying. This is not the theme verse for the militant or uh, the contentious Christian. That's not at all what I'm saying. We are not to labor for division, beloved. We're to labor for unity. That is always and everywhere the theme of the New Testament. There is nothing prescriptive about this. We are not... Uh, we are not commanded to be at odds with our brother. We are commanded, uh, even in the sermon, we will see, to be at peace with our brother. So do not make this your theme verse. But understand, again, I would say, that for all of our labors, and the church was laboring here, to preserve its unity still 
It will never be a perfect unity. We will always fail. That's what I'm saying. Paul and Barnabas failed. You and I are going to fail. We should strive for it, but we're going to fall short. Even in our pursuit of unity, there will be division. There's bound to be disagreement. And sometimes it's difficult to recover the friendship. Sometimes the scars and the wounds will be lasting, even as they were in the heart of a man like Paul. But again, we see how in verse 41, he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches, no doubt delivering the letter in uh, the process, though Luke doesn't say so. And we can imagine the strengthening occurred not only as a result of delivering the letter, but also preaching its contents once again. The church was encouraged. It was strengthened. Why? Well, not just because of the labors of Paul, but because of the things that he told them from the saints in Jerusalem, the things that he told them himself. The letter and the sermons that accompany the letter spelled her freedom. These Gentile churches were wondering, what are we to do in light of the controversy? Well, you're to do this. Forget about circumcision and just make these minor concessions and be at peace for Christ has made you free. Stand in your freedom. The letter spelled her freedom. It ended the controversy, in other words. And how happy is the church when such rulings are made. Let us come to the last place, Lystra and Derby. Another uh, instance of the letter being delivered to Gentile uh, believers. Paul continuing to retrace his steps. But again, Luke doesn't focus on the delivery and reception of the letter, though this was included. But he highlights another interesting fact, uh, which is not incidental to the contents of the letter. In fact, it had a direct bearing on it. His focus now is on this man, Timothy. A new and faithful companion for Paul. He had lost Barnabas and John Mark. He now had Silas and was, uh, was recruiting Timothy as his two helpers. Well, how did Timothy, who becomes so prominent in the New Testament, come into the company of these men? In a sense, Luke is saying he was the perfect man for the job. What job? Again, Uh, Not only being a companion to Paul and Silas, but that of bringing good news to Gentile believers, as well as that of securing unity between Jews and Gentiles in the first century church. And Timothy was the perfect man for the job. He was of a mixed heritage. He was part Jew, part Gentile. His mother was a Jew. His father was a Greek. He was also a very godly individual. He had a good reputation among the churches there. Godliness, by the way, is always prized by Luke. I wonder at times whether it's prized by us as it should be. But whenever highlighting an individual and his labors in the church, Luke always highlights his character, his godliness, his spirituality. And so we read Paul and say in verse in we read Paul in verse three Uh, Say, in essence, uh, I want him to join us. But there was this problem. He was uncircumcised. Now, wait a second. Haven't we settled that matter? Uh, You see, this has a direct bearing on the letter itself. I thought the matter was settled. Was Paul really about to circumcise Timothy in order to placate 
the Jews, after all, he said in the Galatian letter, likely written before the uh, Jerusalem council, and after the determination of the council itself? The answer is yes, he was. He circumcises Timothy. And this is one of the stranger uh, incidents in the whole Bible. I will admit that for many years I have, not I did, but I have struggled over this. I'm not alone. Many, many struggle over this. You you notice if you read the commentators, they're struggling over this. Again, I thought the matter was settled. And and you you connect with what he says in Galatians. And it just seems almost impossible to believe that this was Paul's solution. But let us try to understand Paul's position in full. And perhaps our difficulty in some measure will be resolved. Here was the, the position of the Apostle Paul. It was not that circumcision was in itself sinful and must be avoided at all costs. That was not his position. Listen to him in uh, Galatians chapter 5, verses 5 and 6, uh, or just verse, just verse 6. He says, For in Christ neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything, but faith works through, working through love. Or chapter 6, verse 15. For in Christ neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. Now this is the key consideration. The Apostle Paul placed circumcision in the realm of matters of indifference. It did not have religious value. The problem was, was those who were saying that it did. But he was saying that it didn't. It belonged in the realm of indifference. It avails nothing one way or the other. Let a man be circumcised, uncircumcised. It avails nothing. What matters is faith working through love. What matters is a new creation, whether he's circumcised or not. So Paul wasn't about to say, Timothy, you need to be justified or, uh, or you need to be circumcised rather in order to be justified. That was certainly not what he was saying. Circumcision does not justify quite clearly But neither did it condemn on the other side. You see, you can go too far with this and say, well, he was so concerned to combat the Judaizers that. Well, that he hated circumcision and he had no patience for the practice anymore. You see, no, that misses the point completely. It doesn't justify, but neither did it condemn. Did Timothy become condemned as a believer because he was justified? No. The trouble in either case was those who claimed that it did, when those who attached religious or saving significance one way or another. Listen to Paul in another place, verses 3 and 4 of chapter 5. I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he's a debtor to keep the whole law. You've become estranged from Christ. You who attempt to be justified by the law, you've fallen from grace. They were seeking justification by law. And circumcision was part of that picture. Paul is saying, if that's what you're doing, Well, then you're lost. You're lost. And it was against such a notion that Paul insisted he would not yield even an inch. Chapter two, verses three and four, again from Galatians. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. And this occurred because of false brethren secretly brought in who came in stealth to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ, that they might bring us into bondage to whom we did not yield submission even for an hour. We did not yield An inch to them, he says, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. Now, it's noteworthy. I'm trying to untie the knot. 
And I'm admitting to you that this has been a knot in my own theology for some time. But Titus was a Gentile. He said, I wasn't about to circumcise Titus. And we don't ever read of Paul ever insisting that a Gentile be circumcised, whatever the Jews were insisting or the Judaizers. Not for any reason. But Timothy's case was different. It was unusual. For one thing, he was a Jew by birth in part. And he was also a man who was brought along with Paul to evangelize not just the Gentiles, but also the Jews. Timothy had a kind of strategic importance. And so as as part of Paul's broader policy, and this isn't the only time we'll see this in Acts, Paul was willing, as he says in 1 Corinthians, to become all things to all people. He was willing... Excuse me. He was willing even to come under the law that is the Jewish law for the sake of the Jew, if only he might save some. Indeed, is that not in some sense what we find in the letter that the council sends out? That in some sense we are to observe the Old Testament law and in this case, the ceremonial laws of clean and unclean foods. Why? Well, not as a matter of law, but as a matter of love. In a sense, you see those Gentiles were coming under the law for the sake of love for the brethren, to remove the offense, to make fellowship easier. That's what Paul was doing with Timothy. Not for a moment was he suggesting that Timothy was justified thereby, but as one who was justified in an effort to make uh, to take away the offense. To the Jews, he was seeking to evangelize along with Timothy. Timothy was circumcised. Let me try to untie the knot then like this, as Calvin and others do. Because we've seen on the one hand, he wouldn't yield an inch. On the other hand, he would yield all. You see, that's the dilemma. Here's the solution, I think. The solution of Calvin, that we never yield an inch to the Pharisee and the legalists. Not one inch. Why? Uh, That the truth of the gospel might continue with you. We would never compromise the gospel. We defy them to the end, to the bitter end, though it cost us everything. But to the weaker brother, we yield all. That's the policy of the Apostle Paul. If you read him in 1 Corinthians chapters 8 through 10, if you read him even in Galatians, seeing that these things are indifferent and do not save, we use our freedom either to defy our enemy or to help our brother. Listen to how John Newton speaks of Paul. He says, Paul was a reed in non-essentials, an iron pillar in essentials. He was, he was easily bent in matters of non-essentials. You couldn't bend him at all in matters of essentials, even when other apostles were folding like a leaf. Now, I have no trouble admitting to you, and I think I've done so adequately thus far, that this is one of the practical principles of the Christian life that is most difficult to answer. If you read Calvin, he'll say, yeah, well, how do we know who the Pharisee is and who the weaker brother is? You see, that's the difficulty. Sometimes we're treating uh, the weaker brother like the Pharisee when we should be treating him like the weaker brother. Indeed, sometimes we treat the Pharisee like the weaker brother when we should be treating him like the Pharisee. How do we tell the difference? Well, it isn't so easy. It often centers on the same thing, you see. In either case, it was circumcision. He defied circumcision in one case and another. He yielded. But as soon as we settle in our mind that the thing itself is indifferent, then the course we should take will become clearer to us. Again, to the Pharisee, we yield nothing. 
The Pharisee is someone who says, unless you do this, you cannot be saved. But to those who are weak, that is, uh, a new convert or perhaps someone who isn't a convert at all, like the Jews that Paul and Timothy were evangelizing, we willingly subject ourselves to all things for their sake, that if by any means they might be saved, if by any means they might be won, a soft answer turns away wrath. Obviously, the whole issue of Christian liberty is at stake. I've been referring to Calvin's chapter on that in the Institutes. And again, I think we might find guidance from the Galatian letter itself on the subject of Christian liberty. He says in chapter 5, verse 1, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Don't let anyone ever enslave you again. Not in the least. And yet, we have this freedom purchased by Christ, given to believers, as the foundation not only of our peace in believing, but the peace between believers. Because these old things that used to divide us don't do so anymore. But how are we to use our freedom? This is what the apostle says. For you, brethren, verse 13, have been called to liberty. liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word. Even this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. Do not use your liberty, Paul is saying. That Christ has purchased for you the costly and dear price of his own blood. Don't give it up, he says, for anyone. But don't use it to please yourself, but use it to serve your brother. And if you do that, you do well. That's the policy. This is how Calvin uh, puts it. He says, we will so temper and moderate the use of our freedom that it yields and submits to the ignorance of our weak brothers, but not to the severity of the Pharisees. Well, as the whole incident ends, we read in verses uh, 4 and 5, chapter 16. As they went through the cities, they delivered to them the decrees to keep, that is again from the letter, which were determined by the apostles and elders. So the churches were strengthened in faith and increased in number daily. Another happy picture, not a perfect one, but a happy one. The letter, the preaching, the labors of love and liberty by the Apostle Paul were bearing great fruit. And so I would note these two things in closing. First, do you see how happy the church is who enjoys this freedom? How she's built up in grace, how her happiness depends upon it. The church in bondage to the legalist will never be happy like this, but the church that is truly free will. But the second point is, do you see equally how such grace constrains those who are free sometimes to yield to those who are weaker? And how the happiness of the church depends upon that as well. The happiness, the peace, the unity, the flourishing of the church, the stronger brothers yielding to the weaker. To me, this is the whole mystery of, of what it is to be a Christian in the church. That I'm not to live for myself, but for my brother. And even for my future brother who hasn't even come in yet. This is a question I often ask myself. I wonder if you ask yourself this. And we're always being tested along these lines. When ought I to yield? And when ought I to give in? Oh, sorry. When ought I not to give in? Excuse me. When ought I to yield? And when ought I to stand firm? That's the kind of question you should be asking yourself a lot. Love 
compels you to ask that question. But the gospel also compels you to ask uh, uh, when you ought to stand firm. And, and, and what I have to say to you is that I don't have easy answers to that question. It's, it, it, all that I'm saying here as I close is that we need to be asking ourselves that question all the time. When ought I to yield and when ought I to stand firm for the peace and the purity of the church and her happiness, the integrity of the gospel? These are the things that are at stake. And let us pray that as a result of asking that question that we might be given wisdom and guidance. And that through such things, God would be strengthening and adding to his church as he did in those days. Amen. And let us return our praise to God by standing together and singing hymn 416. Hymn 416.